Hello and welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dian. Today I'm joined with Janos Orlandos. Janos, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, I've known Janos for quite a while. We've collaborated quite a bit. So this is nothing... I've known Giannis for a while, so I'm super happy to finally have an opportunity to have him on and to talk about all the server-side workgroup stuff today. Giannis, I think you're seven, maybe, or eight. Seven. <laughs> I'm surprised. Lucky number seven. I think so. I'll have to look in the show notes again and see. So I'm super happy to have another friend of the show from Netherlands mm-hmm. on the show. Before we get going into the server-side working group, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Yanis Orlandos, as he said, as you said, based in the Netherlands. I actually started with server-side Swift in 2015 when Swift was just released on Linux. Just I think it was a preview to Swift 2.2 or 2.3. And before that moment, I didn't even know about Swift. Like a friend of mine, Robert Bronsma, actually introduced me to, to Swift when it was open source. I was a Linux user, didn't even have a Mac or an iPhone. Never even wow. considered it, to be honest. So I actually started server-side Swift when that was first possible. Yeah. That's awesome. And, uh, I over didn't the know years. That. Yeah. You didn't know? So, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that you were a Linux user. So what did you, what district, were you running like Linux on the desktop? Yeah. Yeah. I had a custom-made laptop okay. and I, I used Arch Linux, you know, when you <sighs> use Arch Linux, you have to tell everyone. It's a bit of I actually a, had a desktop with Arch Linux before I went whole hog into development in the Apple space. So that's hilarious. Yeah. So were you, what were you using for server-side Swift development then? Actually, I tried getting it set up on Linux and it was barely doable. So when I, I first tried Linux, when I first tried Swift on Linux, I was a little bit disappointed, but I understood it was very early, you know. And a friend of mine actually had a, a second Mac that he used. He had an iMac and a Mac book air and i borrowed this macbook air to start developing swift so back in the day there were actually there was only one framework that i prepared well and well in advance which was perfect uh, but i didn't really like right. their framework um they didn't feel swift ish swifty um like they, their apis weren't quite up to the, the the standards that I hoped for when I was getting used to Apple's APIs, foundation and and the like. So I actually came across, the, I actually had this crazy idea, let's just build our web framework ourselves from scratch. And yeah, that proved a little bit more difficult than we anticipated back then because <laughs> there, 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 were, there was no nothing, right? There's no, right, right. No way it's probably not even a Swift Neo at that point. Swift Neo didn't exist for years to come. So, right, right. yeah, so all we knew that it was that there was perfect, which we didn't like using, and that there was this whole new space with new things to explore. So we started building our web server and, and a database driver, which was Mongo Kitten. It still exists. It's still being maintained to this day. And we got in touch with these people called Zewo, and they were building a web server and all the things from scratch as well. And they had a really different approach. They really wanted to have this... Swift ecosystem that felt like Swift. So we started working with them and Vapor came along, Tenor, around, I think, March 2016. Yeah. And things went on from there. I've never left the ecosystem since. That's awesome. I don't know if I've mentioned this to you or to other folks on the show, but my introduction to server-side Swift was 18 when the IBM guys 
did a workshop on Katura and oh. yeah. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here to set up and it's a little bit overly complicated, but this is interesting. And then I like, was like, Oh, let's try this vapor thing. And I was like, Whoa, this is like so much easier to get going. And it's so amazing. And yeah, I've been sucked into it since, but yeah, that's cool. was it for vapor? Was it Vapor 3 or like Cheap Major? I think it was 3. Was it, it, was three. A it was 3. Was it, it a was... beta? I don't know if it was a beta. I don't think they had I don't think they had property wrappers. No, no, then. there were no property wrappers back then. Right, but, right. But um, yeah, that's amazing. What what month specifically? Because I have a bit of a story about Vapor 3 if you <laughs> That would have been September of 18. Cool. So in June of 2017, there was Vapor 2, and Vapor 2 was synchronous. There was no Swift Neo. There were no, there was no concept of a synchronous right. behavior. Right. And I was doing some performance benchmarks for one of my clients back in the day, and they said that our database driver MongoKitten was not as fast as they hoped it would be. So I started researching event loops and basically other ecosystems, specifically Node.js and this ecosystem in Kotlin called Vertex. Okay. And we started building, I started building this thing called an event loop, which nowadays it's a common term, but I started building this idea of an event loop where yeah. we try to optimize IO in a single place and we delegate those events from like reads and writes from a single mm -hmm. place. Yeah. And then on the higher level APIs, we still had the blocking, I still had a blocking API where you could send a query and it would come back, but it used promises to make sure that the event loop kept functioning on its own thread. Yeah. And when I showed it off to Tenor back in Vapor 2, he said, whoa, this is great. The, the performance you can achieve with this is miles ahead of what we could do back in the day. So he actually invited me to help build Vapor 3 and that's where the promises came from. Yeah, the Vapor and, three was amazing. The I love the event loop stuff, event loop futures, and all that stuff. I think it was ahead of its time, and obviously it, with async away, it was like you know now it's a breath of fresh air because it's all behind the scenes more or less. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's under the hood. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, let's get into the main topic of today. So, you, how long have you been with the server side working group? Actually, not too long. So the Swift Server Workgroup was actually created as a result of Zewo. So there, Zewo had a primary, I'd call a project lead called Paolo okay. Faria. Okay. And Paolo had the back in the day revolutionary idea that we needed a foundation for Swift on the server. But when we looked at Swift Foundation, the foundation that you import when you import foundation, there was it wasn't really usable on Linux. It kept crashing, half of the features were missing, if not more. So I had this idea to start an organization called the Swift Standards S4. And every major library offer, like MongoKitten had it, but Vapor and Zewo and others were also invited, like Perfect and Kitura. And yep. everyone could chip in their dependencies that yeah, they wanted to share and wanted a common ground on. And we started developing the packages there. Uh, and then the WWDC of 2016, Paolo visited the WWDC and he said to... Back when people Chris actually Adler, visited WWDC. Yeah, before COVID and the whole... <laughs> but and yeah, he visited WWDC and he talked to Chris Lettner and said, 
you know, this community is growing on Swift on the server is mm-hmm. as a real active ecosystem that people are getting interested in. So you wanted this inf- informal collaboration between library offers to become more formal. And that's actually the foundation of the Swift server work group as it was back in the day. I actually didn't join until March this year. I've always had this love-hate relationship with the Swift server work group back in the day. I didn't understand <laughs> some of its purposes, but... I think that's really due to a lack of communication on the behalf of the Swift Server Workroom here and there. And it's a, now that I'm a, now that I'm a member, I understand the the reasons behind some of the communication a, a little bit more. But we're actually actively working on improving that through various means. So the Swift Server Workgroup has only been in. Uh, I guess I'm only a member of the Swift Server Workgroup for a couple of months now. I've been involved on multiple occasions, to be sure. So, like, one of the things they talk about is finding out the community and what it needs. What, like, how does it do that? And what's kind of an example of something they've done recently that's kind of addressed that? The best example that I can give you is actually something that we're doing shortly. So we're currently setting up a, a couple a questionnaire that we will send out to the public. Uh, and people can leave their opinions in there. This is very much still work in progress. Uh, we're fletching it out as we speak. But the Swift Server Workgroup is... That's one of the avenues that we are currently working on to get active feedback. As it stands, the Swift Server Workgroup has, well, members from up a couple parties, such as the Vapor Framework and Hummingbird. Uh, Amazon has, has members, two of them, and Apple does, and myself. And basically, from all these different perspectives, we are bringing in feedback from our customers, from the people around us, our colleagues, people that we support on forums and in Discord. Slack as well. We, there is a Swift open source Slack that people are actively engaging in and that you can ask questions. And essentially, as an aggregate of every interaction that we have throughout our work, we bring in the things that we deem most important or most urgent. And okay. that basically... Yeah, that's basically how we go about things. Let's take, for instance, something recent, the HTTP types that we that were recently yeah. released. How did that incubation process work as far as going from the idea to like defining it as a best practice that everybody can use? So the HTTP types actually originate from two different perspectives. So there is uh, a demand for a shared HTTP type between iOS and the backend. Yeah. A lot of people that develop Swift on the server also have an iOS app that they want to support using a URL session. And this is a demand that that various clients of mine have to deal with, that various clients of other project offers have to deal with, but also that Apple itself is running into on a daily basis because Apple is actively using Swift on the server as they have presented on the Swift server-side Swift conference, which they, which they also sponsored. They actually get, got there with a team of 20. So as part of the daily working process, we, they, the, the Swift core, core team and the Swift server workgroup members, yeah, we run into these issues from, through our colleagues and peers. And by the HTTP types actually aren't something that the Swift server workgroup developed, but we were aware of it because there was a demand from us that we pitched through Apple. Let's just deep dive into that a little bit more. What's yeah, yeah. your favorite part about the HTTP types? So I personally have a strong desire to unify all of my business logic and domain-specific code in a Swift module. 
preferably without too much too many dependencies right so yeah. the ultimate dream is that i could write a small core of business logic for front ends in swift and through swift web assembly i could share it with web i could use it on ios i could use it on android through gni bindings that's the ideal situation that I envision, that you define your business logic in Swift once and you use them on the various platforms. If you have a platform-neutral package, such as HTTP types, you could then represent these in various means, create these in, through various means, right? So Swift Neo could read this information into a, an HTTP type, which you use on Swift on the server, and then any business logic that creates or processes a GDP request could be done through just a single code base. So there's no need for abstraction layers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's boilerplate code that I've written so many times that it has to I think you're, you and many, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I totally get it. There's a couple, so there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask. I don't know how much you know about it. So feel free to just say, oh, I, I really am not aware of that, but Web, you mentioned WebAssembly. How is that coming along as far as like Swift to WebAssembly for web, you know, essentially web pages, web applications? Where does that stand right now? So Swift WebAssembly has gotten pretty mature, although they have taken a bit of a, an unexpected hit when it comes to the development of the entire thing. So one of the project leads actually started working for Apple. So by, by doing so, they... I mean, the project lead gets to work on a lot of the, a lot of similar problems that Swift WebAssembly used to run into, such mm-hmm. as toolchain support in, in 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 Xcode, and in Swift Package Manager, you can see his pull request in public, and he's doing similar work. Now, you could conclude that Apple is working on Swift WebAssembly, or you could think that Apple has just has similar interests. Yeah. I I don't know, but yeah, yeah, and well, even if I would know, I probably couldn't share. But <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. But yeah, have you played around with it at all? I have, yes. Okay. One of the main problems with Swift WebAssembly is not the the WebAssembly itself. So Swift WebAssembly actually works really well and is up to date, even with Swift 5.9. So even as the new features like parameter packs and macros are coming out, they support it. The main issue with Swift WebAssembly, as it stands, is just the, the ecosystem of libraries. So think where Swift on the server was in 2017, 2016-ish. That's okay. where. I, I guess Swift WebAssembly is ahead of there in the sense that they have a larger language support base, but it lacks that in libraries. Sorry, I want to go down. I want to keep going down this rabbit hole. My biggest sure. problem with WebAssembly has been just like trying to get the tooling to even like make that first step. It was a lot of like custom tooling to get it going. Whereas with like Vapor, it was it's just running Swift to compile it. Like you could run it in Xcode. There wasn't you just bring in the Swift package and you're good to go. Yeah. Whereas with WebAssembly, there's like a lot of tooling prep that I had to get going. Yeah. Is that Carton. still the case? That is still the case. So yeah, okay. Those are limitations that maxes you out of the the previous offer of Swift WebAssembly and currently work at Apple. That okay. he's working on that as we speak. And on similar problems as well. Like there, it has more projects under his belt. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. In, in general, that's definitely one of the main issues that we are that we're currently facing. But I've recently started adopting the Visual Studio Code plugin a little bit more. We're actually using that for everything except iOS in my company right now. Okay. And yeah, as so long as you you set up the right tool chain and have Carton running in the background, it works really well. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. 
So one thing I wanted to talk maybe about. So here's a question. A lot, I mentioned this before, like you'll see stuff that Apple kind of like sneakily puts into Swift because they're going to release something big. So like DSL, Swift UI, macros, Swift data and observation and things like that. Mm -hmm. What has kind of been things that you've seen added to Swift language features that have kind of been necessary, maybe not necessary, but like heavily influenced by the server team? Does that make sense? So there are actually more recent examples that I think are almost purely released for server-side Swift. One of the big things that server-side Swift has really, um, yeah, brought live into, I think, is distributed actors. While distributed actors definitely has a place on an iPhone app, I think it's extremely niche. One example of distributed, for those who don't know, a distributed actor is similar to an actor. That's like most people listening probably don't know. So you're going to have to like really do the the ELI5 here, but go ahead. So a distributed actor starts as an actor. An actor is fundamentally, as a Swift principle, not something that lives on a thread. It lives somewhere in in your memory space. And it's isolated. So when you... Send you when you access a variable or, or a function, it has to happen from within that actor's domain. Whether that actor's domain is a main thread or a different thread is, for all intents and purposes, irrelevant. When you are within that actor's space, you can access properties and call functions synchronously, like without an await keyword. But when you move from outside of that actor space into that actor space, you have to use, or possibly within that actor space, you have to use the await keyword because okay. it has to offload that yeah that it has to basically send it to another thread yeah kind of like when you're running something on main actor you need to basically yeah yeah do await. Yep. It's exactly that yeah so you yeah. have to start it you have to queue it on the main thread like you would dispatch queue uh, main but because the result happens on a different thread your current lat thread has to move on with mm-hmm. different tasks you don't want to block like with dispatch queue sync because yep. if you do that on on the wrong thread, like the main thread, you would block your UI. It would be a disastrous experience. So this fundamentally means that wherever that actor lives, it could be any thread. You don't manage this. Distributed actors actually take this one step for, further, where they say, um, this, not necessarily this thread lives on, on this actor lives on a different thread or any thread. But at this point, a distributed actor lives on any machine. So that could be your phone. It could be the iPhone of your friend. It could be an iPad in the same room or a server on the other side of the world or maybe even a MacBook on the other side of the world. It could be any computer that you are in contact with. So instead of adding the await keyword, this now introduces the try keyword as well. So you have to try await every call because every call could be a network call. Right. over Bluetooth, over right. the internet, but it could also be the local device. And the beauty of this concept is that you can write the same business logic in the same way you would on your local machine as if it were anywhere. And this really simplifies the process of, yeah, it basically introduces the concept of trans- location transparency, like it's a location right. independent object. If we take this into consideration in an iPhone app, it would be a game. You're writing a game like Minecraft, a multiplayer game with blocks. And as if you're playing single player, you simply create a level object 
this level object has functions and properties like where the blocks are, which what entities or mobs or monsters are in the world hunting you. Um, and all of this logic happens on that object, on that class, essentially, on that actor. Um, and by accessing this a function or a property on that actor, you would now have to do a try wait because it's a distributed actor. So because it's a location transparent object, you don't know if it will be local or remote. But because you'll write your logic as a location independent object, the only thing you need to do to create this world in a multiplayer setting, aside from adding the business logic to support multiple players, is sharing this object with another user. And you do this by creating a, providing a transport means, which is a transport, actor transport system. And the idea is that you can have an off-the-shelf one app provided by Apple, in which they have a library for, or your own. And by providing this networking code globally as a static object once, you can share this one object with anyone, and they will instantly join your multiplayer session without added code on your behalf. That's crazy. So That's awesome. It, it, just, it just transforms the entire concept of, of multiplayer. But there's ultimately, the same concept translates better to servers because there is a lot of clustering happening in servers. Think of your database cluster. Right. Think of a Redis, for instance, for example, or the key values of a Redis server could also be a Swift service. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Could it be used as like an abstraction from like manually, going back to our discussion about HTTP types, could it be like an abstraction of like doing Rust calls as opposed to doing something local or doing something remote? You don't know and you don't care because it's all distributed. Well, yes, so it's possible with HTTP, although HTTP itself doesn't really lend itself for this use case. I already have a couple example code bases where a distributed actor replaces an HTTP call. The main issue with this is that P calls have a, a pretty clean format. So you have rest calls where you have a, a clearly defined namespace like slash users is a user object. Mm -hmm. and you call login, I don't know, or get their profile. But in a distributed actor setting, it's a bit of manual labor to make these pretty nice syntactical, you know what I mean? Like it, to make mm -hmm. it syntactically pleasing, to have yep. a clean route, it, it's a bit of a, it's not really supported very well. Yep, yep, yep. No, I totally yeah. get it. It's as much as we like event loop futures, like a say a sync away really like abstracted that and made it a lot cleaner. So no, I totally get those use cases. I wanted to, you talked a little bit about login and I figured now's a good opportunity to address Michaela's question about sign in with app well we'll let's start off with sign in with Apple, something we're both yeah. quite familiar with having worked on it. Yeah. But she had a question on Twitter about just JWT and sign in with Apple and Vapor and how that works. I figured I'd give you the opportunity to address it. So signing with Apple actually is pretty easy to implement with Vapor because under, if you import the Vapor JWT package, if you access your request or application, there is now a JWT object. And this JWT object is a list of signers. So it could be your signer with your own secure, like your own secure key, but it could also be anyone else's signer that is listed there. So they have a couple implementations of the bat for popular vendors like Apple, Google, um, Firebase, Microsoft. And whenever either of these common providers provides a token, you can access request.jwt.apple and verify the token there using their signer. So this will actually verify that the token is signed by Apple. 
And instead of providing your JWT object, they will provide, Vapor provides its own Apple token. And it contains all the information you need for signing with Apple. So all you need to do is pass the JWT token that signing with Apple gives the iOS user. You send it over to the server. And when the server receives it, you pass it into the JWT.Apple signer and you get the well, everything you need, basically, like their user ID, which is unique to your app. You can validate it against your bundle ID. Yeah. There's some other JWT support in Vapor as well, besides signing with Apple, right? Yeah, so they provide a lot of vendors that you can interface with, common vendors, but they also allow you to add custom vendors or your, create your own vendor from... Uh, so like, what are the examples of other vendors they support on Vapor? Microsoft, Google, okay. yeah. Okay. Mainly big parties that, that people commonly interface with. So if you log in with your Microsoft account through to any of their services, you could validate that Microsoft has authorized this token to represent the user. Okay. So basically the big ones, Twitter, whatever. Yeah. 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 And then the other one she asked about, and I kind of know this has been a work, work in progress, is pass keys. Yeah. When is Vapor going to support pass keys, Giannis? So first of all, there's a Swift server package, the way which the Swift server working group is working on, primarily Tim is. And it it's mostly done, I believe it's in a testing documentation phase. So okay. final steps. But yeah. Like I can't, I can't fill in this agenda, of course, but I think it's pretty close, like estimation one for two. This t- That's t- my t- estimation, t- but... Can people help if they are interested in testing it out? Totally. So one of the main things that people ask when they want a new feature in the Swift server ecosystem is usually, yeah, like when, when can I start using it? And most of the time, the answer is you can already start using it, but there is a possibility that the API will break. Yeah. Definitely. And... Well, it's yes, a, I get it. yeah, breaking changes are scary, you know, but yeah. if you depend on an exact version and test that, so you would re- rely on a specific tag, you're yeah. guaranteed that for the time your application will stay working source code yeah. compatible, but it won't get any updates. However, the more people that adopt these, or at least attempt to adopt these packages that are in pre-release, the faster we get the feedback, the faster that we get the feedback, the earlier we feel comfortable releasing a package. So I wouldn't uh, use this in production, but yeah, it definitely you wouldn't helps use it in production, but a lot of people would. So you know, sure. If you could, maybe you could supply the repo URL, and then we could put that in the show notes. That'd be great. We'll do. Yeah, yeah, that's funny because we've done a lot of work where we've used, we've dealt with breaking changes. Redis, you're, you've picked that project up recently. Yep. We're in an exact version with that, and then with APNS push notification support in Vapor, which is really solid. I love it. There's been breaking changes there. So yeah, I yeah. totally get it. That's that's the fun stuff to deal with. Was there anything else you want to talk about when it came to authenticate? Mm. No, I, I, I don't think so. No. Okay. Yeah, I just, I see all of Ricky's posts on Mastodon and Twitter and I'm just like, when can I try that out on my server? So yeah, that's exciting to hear. <laughs> uh, let's talk about, actually, let's talk about the the one presentation we got at dub dub this year that we can talk about that's the new open api kit you want to explain what this new new thing is that they revealed at dub dub this year sure so api kit is actually not an apple library it's a community library that apple adopted and an open api kit fundamentally is just the specific the a codable set of codable types that libraries can use to support open api and supporting open api actually can go in two ways 
So you have generators and uh, serializers. But the traditional way that Vapor users used to do OpenAPI is by generating their OpenAPI documentation from their source code. In this case, the Swift source code is leading. So you define your codable types. Usually in, the, in most use cases, you would use codable to reflect through the object and it would generate the OpenAPI specification from the, each of the properties your model has. The nice thing about this project, the way these people tackled OpenAPI with OpenAPI Kit, is that you, you have an existing code base without OpenAPI. You do a couple minor changes, maybe a couple hours of work, and you can introduce uh, OpenAPI into your project. You, you set up a new route and it generates uh, the YAML or JSON. And we actually implemented it in one of our projects as well, Leo, as you might definitely remember. But one of the problems that we also experienced yeah. in that problem, in that implementation is that because it uses codable for reflection, it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, mm -hmm. to document yeah. everything thoroughly. So if you want to have a username property or an email address and you want to annotate this username is case insensitive, there is no way currently to add these comments in an easy way because it uses codable and there is no way, at least not pre-Swift 5.9, to annotate types or variables. So you couldn't like um, you couldn't like hijack the doxy. No, anything. you couldn't hijack the doxy. You can with 5.9, which is a separate topic, I think, entirely <laughs> macros. But yeah. in in the current state of affairs, before 5.9, you couldn't do that. So you're very limited in the quality of documentation you can provide. Apple actually tackled it the other way around. So they say, you document yes. your, document your API in OpenAPI using one of the, you know, the Swagger browser, or there are a lot of tools for OpenAPI that allow you to build this documentation. And instead of documenting your Swift code, you generate Swift code from your OpenAPI. And it sets up the routes. You can set up the routes in any framework, Vapor, Hummingbird, even Amazon Smoke supports it, I believe now. And all those routes are then automatically registered for you to the framework. And that's yeah. the inverse. So they think the Apple things, and I think fact, technically it's the most correct way to do things, where you document it once in, in OpenAPI, and then you generate your routes from there. I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but like, so there's like a Vapor plugin, right? Where you throw in the open, the, the YAML more or less, and it yeah. hooks up to your Vapor, but there's also, you throw in the, the open API for your iOS app and it produces the network calls that you can make in the iOS app as well. So it works on both the server and the client, I believe, right? Yeah, so OpenAPI, in the broader sense, supports all ecosystems. Right. The way Apple's frame setup works is that because the ecosystem for OpenAPI is so enormous, you simply need just the documentation that you have already created to import it into Postman. Yep. And all of a sudden, you have the entire Postman collection with all your APIs available. And with the same click of a button, you can generate your Android client or your web client for Vue.js. And yes. there's, it's yes. only one step, really, that you need to do once you have the documentation. In with HTTP types and this, they pretty much killed two of my pro side projects I've been working on for the last year. So. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> it's like I've been developer Sherlocked. So, oh, oh well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's a big future in for it. And you do think that it's better to go start with documentation as opposed with code and going the other way around? Uh, in, a, in an ideal use case, yes. But, I mean... 
I, f I do think that the original Open API Kit for Vapor has its place because existing Swift implementations might not have started from an Open API YAML and still need documentation. So there is one. So there's a way you can take existing Vapor apps and then generate the Open API YAML now, as well. Yeah. So there are actually two ways to do this. One of them is currently existing, which is a Vapor Open API Kit. Although it's a little bit of a game change, it changes your code base a little bit in a way that that I don't like, because it actually wraps all the objects that Vapor represents that Vapor gives you, specifically yeah. the request type. Is this, is so this you have to write a lot with? of boilerplate. Yeah, it, it adds a lot of boilerplate to your project, unfortunately. But there's no, there was no way around that. And the yeah. second way to do that is to use macros. Although I didn't publish it yet, I currently have a working setup where. You add a uh, an annotation, a macro to your types, your D, your DTOs, your request input, and your responses. Okay. Um, and these bodies are documented using the comments because, as part of the macros, you can actually read the comments of your types and variables. So this, I feel, is a, a slightly cleaner approach. Yeah. A little bit less yeah. boilerplatey, but yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get a little bit more into macros. How do you think? Macros will affect the future development of server-side Swift. Well, in the broader sense of the word, I, we're all, sorry, in the broader sense of the the, the concept of, of macros, it, it will change everything Like when it comes to Swift. There are so many examples of boilerplate that can be simplified now. And there are already a couple examples of macros that we have had for years and specifically codable. Because Codable, yeah, it's a magical protocol, so to say. It it's is a, a it it's is. a step. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all done before compiler. you even compile. Like I've always been interested in looking at what's going on behind the scenes, and it's like, yeah, no, that's the compiler is doing all that for you. Yeah, it's a, it's essentially what Codable is: is it takes away boilerplate for you, so it generates three things. Well, first of all, Codable generally has two components. It has the encodable and the decodable protocols. Codable itself is not a protocol. Yeah, it's just. A, but encodable generates the coding keys, and a coding okay. key is generated as an enum. So it's generate. It's a private enum that's generated for each of the properties in your in your type, and it works for a, a lot of use cases. So it even works for enums, where if it, you have a raw representable enum like a string, it will take the the string value of the type, and the same for integers. But for structs, it will take uh, a case for each of the values and encode them as each key in JSON. Yeah. And decodable does the same thing, but inverse and generates an initializer for you. And that's all. That's all codable really is. It's an auto, It's a protocol with a co with an encode and decode requirement. And right. if the type or function doesn't exist, Swift generates one for you. And this is all nice until. You want to spell one of the keys differently from how you write them in JSON, at which point you have, then to, you have to manually the, the create code your own decoder email. or the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but sometimes you don't want to do all of that manually just because one variable changed, right? Because one property is slightly differently from what you expected in Swift. So one of the, one of the Apple developers, I believe it was Joe. Okay. He published a set of example macros, and one of them was a codable macro, which implements a codable for you. But it had these, I guess, empty macros as annotations mm. on top of them, where you could customize gotcha. just one coding key or customize one small part of the process. And I think just 
in that sense, it will replace a lot of magic that we had before with, I guess, a new kind of magic, but at least it's a magic that everyone can understand if they learn macros. Yeah, I mean, um, it's like Apple's given us the keys to the car, and now we can like do what we want. And now we can like, drive. We can build our own stuff, which is amazing. So you have you start? I guess you've started building your own custom macros. Is that correct? Yeah. So one of the first macros that I created was actually for enums, because when you have an enum, most people might not know this, but Apple generates some pretty ugly JSON for you when you have like an enum case. It generates this underscore zero, and in there there's like the type name, and it, it's pretty horrible. So what I created is a small macro that takes the enum case name. So if you have an enum user type with three types, a user, an admin, or a moderator, and each of these types has their own set of associated values, it will generate a type called you with the value user, admin, or moderator. Okay. And then it puts the rest of the model the model underneath. Yeah, nice. I like that. And and it's just a lot cleaner than what Apple provided out of the box. Yeah. Uh, but we also have like documentation macros, like I said, for Open API. And currently we are working on new macros as well to remove boilerplate such as mocking. When you write a we have a lot of mocking in some of our code bases. Yeah. So for example, we have a struct for some business logic, but you want to mock that business logic. So now you have to write a protocol with all the same properties and functions. And then you have to write a mock class yeah. with all yeah. the same properties and functions. We generate those now. Yeah, of the that's mock awesome. The what else do you want to talk about before we close out? We have a few minutes left. Yeah, I, I guess the most important bit is the Swift, yeah, the packages that we're working on with the Swift Server Workgroup. I want to highlight those a little bit more. Yeah, because let's you, go you for mentioned it. the HTTP types, uh, but there's a couple other big innovations that are happening right now. For example, in, in, in specifically Hummingbird, there is currently a 2.0 going on. So Hummingbird has had a 1.0 release early this year. And there were a couple uh, major changes in the ecosystem, particularly a couple new libraries that the Swift Server Workgroup has started working on. HTTP types is one of them. But we are also working on a standardized HTTP server that all frameworks can share and generalized macro system. And there were a lot of existing libraries that were released for Swift, like distributed tracing and logging was improved and yep. metrics. So all of these libraries that are currently being released are pretty hard to adopt in existing frameworks like Hummingbird 1 and Vapor 4. So everyone is looking to up their major, not in a majorly breaking way, but in the in a technically breaking way. So we try to keep everyone keep, tries to keep the APIs as compatible as possible while still able while still wanting to release new features that the ecosystem can finally make use of. Awesome. So I think the best thing I can recommend everyone to do is to hop on the Vapor Discord or the Hummingbird Discord and leave your use cases and opinions. I think one of the main troubles that Vapor and Hummingbird both are having is that there are a lot of users out there, including customers of mine, that are using Vapor actively. Some of them even have 15 developers using just on Vapor, and they're not on Discord. I'm not leaving their opinion, not interacting with the community, not sharing that they are using Vapor. And I think it's just a real big boost of the ecosystem to have some more engagement. Even sharing just what you're running into, some small issues or questions, it really helps in ways that you might not expect. We'll put links to those discords and to the, is it the server-side Swift or open-source Swift Slack? Swift open-source Slack, yes. Okay, we'll put links to those in the show notes as well. Anything else you want to mention? 
any cool projects you're working on, any other ways people can help the server-side work group? Yeah, so actually there's two projects that I'm starting to work on now. The one is, as you said, the Redis driver. Recently, Nathan stepped down from the Redis driver and wanted to focus on different things. In the, his place, I stepped up together with Fabian from Apple, and we're building some new features such as cluster support, username support, also really cool new features when it comes to performance optimizations and Redis pops up. On the other hand, there is a new project that I'm actually planning to formally announce next week, which is Mongo Neo. Nice. And Mongo Neo is a new foundation, basically Postgres Neo, a foundation library for people that want to work with MongoDB. It will remove all of the high-level APIs that MongoKitten offers and just focuses on the core so that other people can vendor their own MongoDB-based implementations on top. Cool. That will be announced probably around the time I release this. So perfect. <laughs> Giannis, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was good to finally have you on the show. Where can people find you online? I'm mainly active on Twitter at Yanis uh, Orlandos. You can also find me on GitHub with my first name, Yanis. Awesome. J-O-A-N-N-I-S. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion, Mastodon at Leo G. Dion at C.I.M. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. And if you're listening to this podcast, please give me a review. If there's something you want to talk about or something you want to hear about, let me know. Send me a tweet or two or email or whatever. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining me. And I look forward to talking to you again. Bye. Bye.